0: We have been journeying all through November through this book, Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. It is a book that has been transforming clergy and laity for over 50 editions, 50 years. And, And the anniversary of that, we've been kind of drawing together how Christ or the church can interact with culture. How does it interact? How do we perceive its interaction and what does that mean for us? Well. The past few sermons, we've outlined some of the members of our family of faith who feel different ways. The first one that Niebuhr identifies are those who believe that Christ is against culture. These are our siblings in faith who are the pessimistic ones in our midst. They're the ones that don't find anything redemptive about human culture. Then you have our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that believe that Christ and culture are united. This is the Christ of culture. They understand Jesus because of their culture, and it's funneled through there. Those are our syncretists. Those are those in our midst who are are quite happy marrying the two together and just trying to live in blissful um, matrimony there. Then you have the ones we talked about last week. These are those who are more the redemptive end of our theological spectrum. They believe that Christ is over culture, but that there are things in the culture that can be redeemed. They are definitely the optimistic ones in our midst. Well, today we're gonna be talking about those Christians who believe that Christ and culture are in paradox. They don't quite fit together, but they're not quite an open warfare. How do they work together? These are the realists in our family of faith. They struggle with the reality of the dichotomy between faith and our world and this is something that is very common these are our people who you might know in our family of faith here in crozet even who read the news and they look at the media and they pay attention to the events and the politics of the world and they can become deeply depressed they can despair over the reality of a world that no matter how many times we talk about jesus christ no matter how many people become christians no matter how many are baptized like michaela There always seems to be this rash of hatred and violence and pain and suffering in the world, and they are not reconcilable. Christ has come. Christ has brought us the word. Christ brings us grace in an unparalleled way. Why is there still this level of suffering and death? Why are people still fighting with words of hatred instead of embracing in the family of faith that we have come to enjoy? Why is this happening? And as they struggle with this, they're not really sure what the answer is. And I'm not sure any of us have the answer unless we agree that the answer is Jesus. We're just not sure how to filter that into our lives. And so they struggle with these things. And many Christians have struggled with this. Many would, would come under what Niebuhr calls the Christian in paradox, including the Apostle Paul who very often was confronted with this reality as he would plant a new church community in his travels, and they would immediately have this incredible, enthusiastic response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they would make a commitment to turn from their sin and become Christians. And then Paul would leave, and reality kicks in. And how do we live that out because our culture is not Christian, and in some cases was openly hostile to Christianity, what do we do now? Which is why we have so many letters from Paul addressing this. How do we handle this now? And Paul was also struggling with what he thought was a short time span until the return of Jesus. And so he's trying to triage at the same time he's training. That's really hard to do. Martin Luther, who established the the denomination that would become Lutheranism, also struggled with this, the, the, the dissonance between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the painful reality of our world. And it has deep biblical roots. Christians in paradox are, are well acquainted with some of the stories of the Bible that talk about the fact that human culture which is our achievements, the things that we create, everything from art to music to literature and the way that we express ourselves verbally and in writing and in pictures, the ways now in which we create and we uh, send out communications our achievements in science and medicine even have cultural shape to them now. And all of these things are part of who we are. It can be very nationalistic. It can be regional. It can be faith-driven. It can certainly be from the part of the world that you're in or for your travels and your experiences. And as we recognize that, if you go all the way back into the scriptures, you'll find one of the first paradigms about the conflict between God and culture comes in the book of Genesis. Genesis. Now, these are the same Christians that read like the the Christians that believe in Christ over culture are more optimistic Christians. These are the same Christians that read that, yes, humankind were created in the image of our of our God. Our creator, our maker created us in the first story through the spoken word, in the second story through much more of a hands-on, very intimate depiction of that. But either way, human beings were created by God in God's image. And then suddenly, you go a little bit further, a few chapters in, and somebody thought it would be a really good idea to build a tower all the way up to heaven for our own glory and got a bunch of people to buy into this. We call this the Tower of Babel. And it wasn't about bringing glory to God. It was about building a giant tower, a giant spiral up to the sky so that they would be known, so that they would have recognition and others would think, wow, those people are really good over there. And so the story goes on to say that God's like, this is not why we build. This is not why we do this. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to confound you all by giving you a multiplicity of languages, so now try to read the instructions. We experience this when we go to Ikea. Now, they understand in the scriptures that really what was supposed to be driving them was an understanding of who they were in relationship to God. That's a lot easier within the church than it is outside the church. Outside the church, you have plenty of people that don't even believe in God. So what do we do with this? This is why there can be so much anger or hurt or just sorrow coming from Christians who understand the world and paradox. Because there seems to be this great acknowledgement in them and in their words about the fact that something changed when Jesus was born. Something radically shifted in our world. It was the inauguration of the kingdom to come. That has already begun. That process started with the birth of the Christ child in Bethlehem. And it continued to emerge at his baptism. It continued to reveal itself through his earthly ministry and ultimately his passion, his death, his resurrection, but certainly in the establishment of the faith that comes forth from Jesus Christ, that something has shifted. We catch glimpses of the kingdom. We can sometimes feel it, sense it. We can see it a little bit. And then very quickly, something happens in our world and it fades again. This is the reality and sometimes the very painful daily existence of the Christian in paradox. This is the person that has a wonderful experience on Sunday in worship, goes home and, and ponders and reflects on all of the good things that is going on in their life and in the lives of their loved ones and, in, and what Christ is doing to transform them in the world. And then Monday morning gets up and hears about another mass shooting in a school. This is the struggle that they endured. How can that have happened yesterday and this happened today? And where do I find my hope for Tomorrow. So Christians in paradox are constantly struggling with this. Sometimes it's a much more internal thing, but sometimes it's external. And there are plenty of ways of describing this. My personal favorite is to quote a saint of mine, St. John of Cash, who talks about walking a line, right? (laughs) You like that? That's for you. But he does. He talks about, you know, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep loose the ties that bind. Because you're mine, I walk the line. And Christians in paradox feel like they are constantly walking a line, or maybe more accurately, a tightrope. They feel like they are on the verge of sainthood because they understand and they have seen and they have witnessed and they testify to the glory of perfecting grace, (coughs) grace that can help us truly step aside from our sin and embrace the, the freedom and the liberty that Christ gives us to live as redeemed people. But at the same time, they recognize that they were created as human beings and that we are inclined, we are bent to sinning. Didn't take very long for that to happen. And so they recognize that human beings naturally prefer our will to God's will. And that's really where the struggle is. It's not about what we want. It's about what God wants, and God wants us to want the same thing. The problem is that our will takes up so much space in our body. It overloads our minds, our hearts, our inclinations. Our knee-jerk reactions are based upon what we want. And so we have to struggle to set those things aside. And the Christian living in paradox that Niebuhr will sometimes call the dualist, the dualist Christian, is constantly embattled by this truth. That just as Michaela was baptized, long before she's committed any sin, long before she actually needed the grace, she has received that she has already started a new path onto sainthood. And there will be shining moments in her life that her family will witness that sainthood emerge in her. She will say and do things and you will think to yourself, my God, I hear you and see you in her. And those moments will be so beautiful and so fleeting in this world. Because the reality is that just like the rest of us, Michaela is going to grow up. She's going to realize that she has a voice and she has a will. And she can make a way. And so she is also going to discover that, hey, I can do things. Sometimes our siblings show us how to do that. We start to realize that we can manifest our will and get our way. But the struggle for us is always tempering that. Showing one another what it is like to embrace God's will and God's way. Because that is truly where the rubber meets the road for the Christian. How do we translate this into this? And as we struggle with that, we have to be aware that there are people that wrestle with this constantly now, some of us who uh, will go through this entire process about Christ and culture will discover that we are not simply one, or we may feel this way today, and tomorrow we might find ourselves on the other side. There are days where you might wake up and you might say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm with the pessimists. I'm completely against this culture. It's irredeemable. There's nothing good going on in this culture because you're having a bad day and you're seeing the extent of suffering that is coming from our culture, and that's Okay. Because the same day you're waking up and feeling that, there's somebody else waking up on the other side of town or the bed who wakes up and goes, you know what? I just love what God's able to do through the culture. I love the things that allow me to experience goodness and allow me to bless other people. And they don't even have to come from the church. I love the fact that God is able to do anything through even this culture that we have made. And those are the moments where you're like, seriously, get out. Get out. Do you hear me? And the difference in Christendom, this is the difference between Christendom and culture. The difference in Christendom is that we need to receive both of those. We need to hear them. We need to affirm that they are worthy of being spoken, written, thought, felt. We need to receive all of that so that ultimately we can begin a process and a dialogue that we can reflect on all of these things. Most of us are not just one of these perspectives, by the way. I'm sure that you've noticed since I've already quoted Johnny Cash that I'm a little bit more of the redemptive side of this. I'm more of the optimistic side. But there are many, many days where I wake up and I feel that this world is a paradox. There are many times that I wake up and I reflect on the fact that I'm getting ready to go out and try to manifest my vocation and my call in a world that thinks that that's bizarre. Why would you choose to do that? Now, these are the questions where people go, so how did you you decide to be a pastor? I was like, what makes you think this has anything to do with what I want? Nothing, right? If you think that you're called by God, you are trying to Jonah, the nearest ship to Tarshish you can get on. You are not trying to head to Nineveh. You are trying to get out of here. But what happens is, that because of our relationship with God, because those of us that have encountered God's grace and God's love know that God is real, know that we cannot deny the existence of our God, we are forced to reconcile God's will with our will. Our will is about, you know, I I would like to have a Sunday off every now and then. Our, Our will is, you know, hey, why can't I go travel for Christmas? Or get that break on Easter when it falls on Holy Week for traveling. Why can't I do those things? Because we live a life that says that our will has been subjected to God's. That we have put ourselves in a subservient position. And the world thinks that that's crazy. In fact, I can't tell you the number of family members that still get angry at me that I don't come visit on Christmas Eve. I'm sorry, I'm doing four worship services. How would you like me to fit Chesapeake in? Right? It's a little struggle, but this is who we are when we struggle with these things. And the, and the hardest part, I think this is really what hurts the heart of the dualist. The hardest part is that you know that you are going to make somebody hurt, angry, disappointed. You know that not everybody is going to be happy because these sides don't fit together perfectly. And the reality of the church is that we are not a perfectly well-fitted together body of Christ. We are a body of Christ that is amorphous. We are a body of Christ that is constantly in flux. People are coming in. People are going out. People are being born and baptized. People are dying. We are constantly in a state of flux. And Jesus recognizes this. He recognizes that we struggle with this, and that's what Peter struggled with in the reading today. Peter, just a couple of verses before I started reading, had that wonderful high holy moment where he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus says, who do people think I am? And they give their, their opinions, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, and Jesus goes, yes, good job, Peter, and then he starts to say, and here's what that means. That means that I am going to be betrayed. I am going to be handed over to our highest, holiest, most religious, most authoritative leaders, the elders, the, the chief priests, and the scribes, and they are going to hand me over to suffer and die. And on the third day, I will rise again. And Peter stopped hearing anything after I will die. Peter stopped. Everything just became like Charlie Brown and the Peanuts and Miss Othmar. Womp, 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 He heard Jesus was going to die, and he didn't like that. And we can sit here and get very pejorative about Peter. Well, Peter's being very selfish, or Peter thinks he knows better, or whatever. Here's what I think happened with Peter. Peter has already been radically transformed by his relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ walked up to him while he was on the job in a fishing boat and said, get up and come and follow me, and Peter did it. Peter <laughs> followed him. There was something about Jesus that has continued to transfix Peter. He has walked away from everything he knew, his life, his family, his job, where he lived. He has followed this man. He believes in this man. He has listened to him. He has watched him perform miracles, and he is in. And the most terrifying thing that he could even fathom just came out of that same man's mouth, that he is going to die. And Peter doesn't want to hear it. Peter doesn't want to talk about death. He certainly doesn't want Jesus to die because Peter sees hope in Jesus Christ. Peter sees that Jesus can make a difference. Peter sees that life will never be the same when people encounter Jesus, and he does not want that to end. He doesn't want it to be corrupted by debt. He doesn't want it to become co-opted by those that will use Jesus to tell their message and not that of Jesus Christ. And he gets upset. And he tries to do the right thing. Did you catch how he tries to take Jesus aside? Jesus, come over here for a second. Jesus, you can't die. Don't do it. Don't die. And Jesus, if you pay attention to the text, actually turns away from Peter. He puts him behind him, and he looks at the rest of his disciples. And he says, Peter, you've got to get behind me, because if you're going to block me, I'm going to walk around you. I'm going to walk through you. I'm going to walk over you. I'm going to walk past you because do you see them? Do you see all those people, the crowds that are coming? Do you see everything that is going on? Can you begin to fathom how big this world is about to get? And I have to do this for all of them too. It's not just about you and me, Peter. It's about all of this. And he's not claiming that Peter is now inhabited by a demonic force. He's not claiming that the devil has has taken over Peter. He says to Peter, and the word in Hebrew is Satan, adversary, get behind me. You cannot be my adversary here. Either you understand who I am and what I must do or get behind me because I'm not turning around. I'm walking this way. And he knows where his path is. He knows that he has to complete these things. And Peter, like all of us, are struggling with that truth because how we most often think about death is not because of the church, it's about our culture, which is why our culture hates death. We are in a culture that is abhorrent about death. It fears it, it makes it angry, it makes it hurt. And for the Christian, we have to hear those last words of Jesus. I will die and rise again. I will make all things new. It's what he says upon the throne in our first reading i from Revelation, I am coming, mourning, crying, death, pain, suffering will be no more. That's not just his promise esoterically. That's his promise to you and to me, his promise to Michaela, to her family, that the new life that she just received does not end when her body does this time around, but that she will receive something so wonderful and beautiful, eternal life, That the same God that has watched her and known her intimately, the same God that now offers her grace before she needs it, the same God that has just committed to being with her every day, every step of her journey, is promising that they will never be apart. Never. But we don't hear that because our culture screams so loudly at us, death is the end, death is final, death is hurtful and scary and we should not talk about it. Death does a Peter when you start talking to the culture, right? When you start talking out there to people about death, they pull what Peter did. We can't talk about that. That's morbid. Why would you talk about that? And Jesus says, I want you to be prepared. I want you to know. I want you to experience this from a different trajectory, a different theology, a different doctrine. I want you to know that it's going to be okay because I am with you. And the Christian in paradox, they cling to one thing above all else, that they know that Jesus Christ is coming back. They know that the redemption that began on the cross will be perfected when Christ returns. They know in their heart of hearts that this is not the end, that our culture is not going to have the final say when it comes to death and sorrow, mourning and pain. They know that Jesus Christ will have that word. And his word is, it's over. I'm going to take all that away from you so that you don't have to suffer. I will bear your sin on the cross and I will bear your death in the tomb and I will remove all of those things from you. And he has made that promise time and time again. With every pouring of the baptismal waters, that promise is renewed. We had the opportunity today to witness him saying it for the first time to Michaela. We had the opportunity to see that that promise is still as real and true today for her As it was for those of us when we received it, as it was when he received it. That the promise is true. But the struggle for us as Christians is what do we do between this and death with the reality that we're in? What do we do? Because it's not an easy journey. You're going to go out of this place, this holy place, and this time with God, and you're going to go back out into a world that is going to confront you with all kinds of dichotomies and struggles and disagreements and nasty ways of handling those disagreements. It's going to be a world that is going to be filled with death but doesn't want to talk about it. It's going to be filled with a world full of pain and suffering but doesn't really want to address it. And when we go back out into that world... If we're not a dualist ourselves, then we have to recognize that there are people who are struggling and deeply in pain just at the reality of the pain and suffering of others. And we need to hear that. We need to receive that. It grounds the optimistic Christian. It makes us remember that it's not all about one day everything's going to be perfect. But there's a reality that we must work through today. That we have things to do. Jesus says, even now, you must take up your cross and follow me. Even now, you must be so committed to me that you are willing to plow through and continue in a world that is not going to support your journey. A world that is not going to recognize the authority. Being baptized in Jesus Christ is not going to get Michaela into college. It's probably not going to get her approved for a really good mortgage rate. It's not going to have that kind of effect on our life. But what it will do is when her moment comes and she feels darkness and alone, when she feels like she is unworthy or she feels like she is abandoned, that peace of God inside her will speak to her. And it will say to her, my light is in you. My light shines through you. My light shines for you. You have been forgiven even now and tomorrow. And I love you and you are mine. And when all of those here who witnessed that moment for her, that moment that it came true, when the promise was revealed, when all of you are gone, God will whisper to her and say, I hold them in trust for you, Michaela, and I will return them to you. That is the promise that we get. And that is the struggle in a world that doesn't affirm that. In a world where people are pitted against each other, instead of saying, we don't agree on how to handle it, but can we agree that people are suffering? Can we agree that death is wrong? Can we agree that the kind of violence that is bringing about this death is not okay? How do we then work forward? Now, there's one opinion in Christendom is that we all have to be uniform, that we all need to have the same thought process and agree to the same thing. Good luck making that happen. Good luck. Instead, Jesus' answer to us is not uniformity, it is unity. It is the idea that we are together, that there is a place in the body of Christ for the pessimistic Christian, for the synchronous Christian, for the optimistic, the realist, and then the one who is the objective Christian is coming next week, the one that has an objective that they are trying to accomplish. The very highly motivated Christian is next week. There's a place for all of us in the body of Christ. Our struggle for those of us who are already in the body of Christ is to, one, figure out our perspective, and two, figure out how to convey it, and it doesn't always have to be spoken. How do we convey what we feel Christ teaching us? How do we convey the message that Christ has placed on our hearts and in our heads? How do we convey that message? Because there are things upon which we struggle, and there's a bunch of boxes up here, and this morning, the kids at 9.30 were all excited about the boxes, And these boxes are a point of contention in the body of Christ. These boxes don't make it necessarily easy for us to be in ministry and mission together. And why is that? Well, first of all, it's not a Methodist thing. And, you know, all of the hard work that's gone into these boxes, all of the intention and all of the goodwill and the blessings and the prayers and the discernment, and all of the good things that have gone in these boxes and the hope of blessing children all around the world on Christmas have gone into these boxes, but these boxes aren't over. There's other things that are going to go into these boxes. There's some religious tracts and some pamphlets from a non-Methodist organization that are going to go in those boxes. Those boxes are going to go out and be distributed by people that are not necessarily United Methodist. And so as those boxes go out, and as the organization, the Christian organization that is doing that sends those boxes out, the question is, do they become tainted? And I have listened to every kind of Christian in our church have a conversation about these boxes. And we're not done. Because the body of Christ is not a static thing. The body of Christ will continue to discern. It will continue to think about how it feels in light of as things change in the world. And I know people who see great hope in these boxes. I know people that are deeply invested in these boxes and they think to themselves, there are things that are very practical and helpful in these boxes. And then there are Christians that deeply struggle over what's not in these boxes yet but will be. There are Christians that struggle over taking part in something that might change the actual outcome of what happens because politics change things. And that's a struggle that we have. It's the reality of living in the body of Christ. But here's the one thing that we all agree on. We all agree that we're here (coughs) to serve Jesus Christ. We all agree and are unified by the fact that we believe that our faith should have form, that we should be able to do something for other people. What that something is and what it looks like, (laughs) that's the hard part to figure out. But we will continue to have discussions and prayer and discern. We will continue to be engaged in what the questions are and what the qualms are. What is it that we're trying to do? Because, as I said, we are walking a fine line here. One instance, we think we're in sainthood. And the next minute, we're over here in Centerville. And that's exactly what Peter discovered. One minute, he was high on sainthood. I recognized the Messiah. I called it. The next minute, Jesus is like, whoa, adversary. Whoa. You might know who I am, but you can't stop me from doing what I want to do. And oh, that's the hard part about being a Christian. When you recognize who Jesus is, but do you really want to do what he wants to do? And that's where we struggle. And so as we continue to figure out who we are, in light of this discussion, as we continue to be confronted by a world that more and more wants to dictate the role of Jesus in the church and in our culture, it's our duty to discern what our next steps will be. How do we speak loudest that Jesus Christ is Lord? How do we proclaim to the highest heavens and all across the earth that we follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords? How do we declare that his grace is not only sufficient, but it is abundant? It is enough. It is enough for you and for me and for Michaela, who hasn't begun to yet need it. It is there, and it is righteous and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere. May that be the message that we learn to convey each and every day until Christ comes back to put the completion upon what he began at his birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.